family. Welcome to the Hands Up, Don't Shoot podcast, where I, your host, Ashley France Howell, tell the stories of Black victims of police brutality. You can support the show by going to buymeacoffee.com slash hudspod. Today's episode will feature a special guest, and since our conversation was so fulfilling, I decided to split it into two episodes, and you'll be able to hear the second part next week. I have with me today Dr. Kimia Nuru-Dennis. Dr. Kimia Nuru-Dennis is an activist, sociologist and criminologist, educator, and researcher. As founder of 365 Diversity, Dr. Dennis provides results-based services for decision-makers in K-12 schools, colleges and universities, businesses, and for-profit and non-profit organizations. Emphasis is placed on supporting and protecting people's underserved and minoritized identities and experiences in personal lives and professional lives. A range of demographics and cultures captured consist of religion, spirituality, race and ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status, language and communication, mental health, physical health, self-harm and suicide, disability, reproductive decisions, and sexuality. Born and raised in Richmond, Virginia, Dr. Dennis lived in North Carolina for 17 years, eight years in Raleigh to attain her doctorate, and nine years in Winston-Salem as a college, faculty, and university staff. Dr. Dennis lives in Baltimore, Maryland, and connects with local, national, and international schools, businesses, and organizations. And with that being said, I want to welcome Dr. Kimia to the show. Hello, Dr. Kimia. Welcome to the Hands Up, Don't Shoot podcast. Um, It's great to have you here. Can you tell the people about yourself and what you do? Thank you so much for having me here, Ashley. I'm Dr. Kimia Nuru-Dennis. I'm an activist, sociologist, and criminologist educator and the founder of 365 Diversity. So people can learn a lot about my work if they go to 365diversity.com. Awesome. Can you give us a little more background on what 365 Diversity is and what you do with your your company? Yes. So it's based in results-based work. So I do not believe in doing equity trainings where you spend the whole entire time giving people definitions. Instead, I address policy changes, program changes, and conducting annual assessments. So I come from academia in which I created an academic program. And for nine years, I was in charge of developing curriculum, doing curriculum changes, helping library determine what resources to use. I chose textbooks. I did annual program assessments and faculty evaluations for the accreditation component for the school. And so I know that when schools, for example, that includes K through 12 and colleges and universities, when they claim they don't know how to change curriculum, they all have curriculum committees. So they know how to change it. It's just that they're so accustomed to telling us as Black people, for example, that something is impossible, that they just keep doing that instead of inconveniencing themselves. So the work I do is about things that are not convenient. Changes are not convenient. 
equity, inclusion, and justice are not convenient. We're talking about tens of thousands of years of injustices for certain identities and centuries for other identities. And so 365 Diversity addresses that work beyond the smiles, beyond the hashtags, beyond the DEI acronym, beyond our holiday becoming a federal holiday, go beyond the surface level rhetoric and it's unapologetic, meaning there's no such thing as equity and justice that is all smiles, including when the people who are oppressing you are smiling. If the people oppressing you are smiling, that means changes are not happening. So 365 Diversity does that real work and I collaborate with other organizations and activists. I don't believe that we as people need to be doing things by ourselves. We need to collect with the people who've been doing this work for generations and come together and help each other with this work. Awesome. Sounds good. So I I heard you mention going sort of past that surface level, Mm -hmm. you know, diversity training and things that we, we see all the time. Mm -hmm. What do you see I guess, as the problem with the the diversity trainings that are currently happening? Yeah, so with the work, even when I was faculty, full-time faculty, I still spent most of my time doing community work. And so I attended different diversity, equity trainings, workshops, and they all had the same problem, which is the racial equity trainings were 100% about making sure white people remained comfortable Make sure you don't say anything to offend white people, including if they use analogies like, I used to be scared of dogs. I'm no longer scared of dogs. And they try to use that as a comparison of interactions with uh, black people. We're told to not challenge that. So if it's LGBTQIA justice and equity, the idea is you make sure cisgender heterosexuals don't get offended by anything you say. When it's gender equity work, you make sure men don't get offended. I mean, the list goes on. And so that's a real common problem is that 99% of this work around the world, it's based on the past five, 10 years of work, including New York Times bestsellers work. And I always tell people if it's a New York Times bestseller, that means it really doesn't challenge white people because white people are not going to use you for their equity book club if they really feel challenged by you that much. Mm-hmm. So it's not based on centuries of indigenous works, black works. It's based on the new stuff. And so, so I tell people, when you come to my work, whether your school, business, organization hires me, it is preparing you for discomfort. Because if you can't be uncomfortable, how do you think your employees feel? How do you think your students are feeling, right? Mm-hmm. Like if I'm doing a training for a medical facility and the white people are mad now. And I said, that's interesting that the deal breaker is white people's anger and and white people's tears. Meanwhile, the indigenous, black, non-white Hispanic, non-white Latin, Asian employees and patients and communities have complained about this mental health or medical facility for generations and they've been dismissed. But yet and still, when a white person's mad, that's when something has to be canceled. And so that's the problem with most equity and inclusion work. They, when you offend 
the people who are abusing power. They say that you're being divisive, that you don't know how to mm-hmm. do equity work. And I says, well, actually, I do know how to do equity work because equity work is about the underserved and minoritized people. It's not about the voices, the freedoms and the power of the people who are already in power. And that same goes for when you talk about like safe zone trainings for LGBTQIA people. I encourage these safe zone trainings to spend less time giving people introduction glossaries and more time actually talking about how do these inequities manifest in people's personal lives, professional lives, medical and health, politics, and so forth. In other words, cisgender heterosexual people should not be sitting in safe zone trainings, giggling, laughing, and then walk out of it. All they got is a written down glossary. Right. I mean, it's like, it's literally the same thing over and over again. So I tell people, if you specialize, if you claim to specialize in equity, inclusion, and justice, but your only purpose is to profit from it, so you make the oppressor happy because you want to make money, then you're not invested in inclusion, equity, and justice. You're Mm -hmm. invested in just sending people dictionary definitions that they can access in their own time and making money. Capitalism is not the same as inclusion, equity, and justice. So with 365 Diversity, I really challenge all of that landscape that people keep using because far back in 1960s, Black activists, Black scholars were, guess what, hosting racial equity trainings with white people. So we've done this. We've been doing this. This is not a new thing. (laughs) If you come up to me and say, hey, here's an idea, it's not a new thing. We've we have done this. Indigenous people have done this for generations. For centuries, we have petitioned to police departments and schools and medical and health providers. So when people say they don't know how changes happen, it's because our voices have been thrown in the trash can. Like literally, if you write a petition or a proposal for changes, white people have centuries of telling us, okay, we received it, thrown in the trash can, right? Mm. And so... So I just want people to understand this is these are not new ideas. So I'm furthering this unapologetic work that's been done for centuries. And I'm making sure that people understand this work is impossible if you confuse collaboration with tokenism. You're not collaborating when you're making sure you keep it comfortable for the power majority. And that's white people as it pertains to race. You're tokenizing yourself. Completely different thing. So I I heard you mention about petitioning police officers. So, you know, mm-hmm. the podcast is focused mm-hmm. on police brutality. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in your take on how to present this type of training to police officers. Well, I no longer train police officers. Oh, okay. So I spent nine years doing recruitment for different police departments. So some of my fa- some of my former students are now police officers and work for police departments. So I helped with nine years of recruitment Mm -hmm. because, you know, it was a crime academic program and I I have a criminal justice background. I did that because I was trying to be optimistic that the police departments really not only wanted tokenism in terms of more women, more black and brown people, more LGBTQIA people in uniforms, but actually changing policies and procedures. And that's not what they want. So eventually I had to back up out of that. So when I taught about police, I didn't teach it from a police are here to help us standpoint. 
I taught it from the reality, which is the reality that police are not deterrents, police are not first responders. I volunteered for years doing CIT, crisis intervention team training with police departments when I was on the mental health board of directors. And police want to hold on to their training. They want to hold on to the way they do things. Although a few police here and there will appreciate trainings and say, you taught me a lot. Most police resort back to what they've always done. And they really believe that no one knows what they're doing but them. Same mm -hmm. thing with medical and health professionals. So here's why I always compare police with medical and health professionals. These are the two groups that control our lives. They can literally kill us legally and never be held accountable. And if you try to challenge them, they say, well, you didn't, you didn't get my academic degree. You didn't go through my trainings, blah, 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 blah. And I said, here's funny. I'm the one who's created academic programs. I'm the one who's taught, you know, medical students. I'm the one who's done a lot of this work. So I literally know what you all are learning. I know that for most of you, health equity is a subtopic and not a component of every single course you took since undergrad, medical school, and throughout your career trainings. So I tell people, instead of pretending that you've discovered something that people outside your field of expertise don't know, you have to understand we do know what's happening. We know that you're killing people. And we know that when challenged, you rely on, well, this is how we do things. This is how our policies are. And their policies are problematic. So I no longer do trainings with police departments. Why? Because 99% of police departments are very content with just bragging about doing an implicit bias training. And no matter where you are, um, everyone's going to always have bias. So I tell mm -hmm. people, stop wasting your time pretending to read people's minds and pretending to reduce bias. Instead, we have to reduce power and we have to reduce the ability for people to abuse power. No matter how many biases they have in the world, it's the power that allows police to be brutal. Even if police see a Black person and they assume the Black person needs to be stopped and frisked, even if it's not in a uh, state that has stop and frisk laws, they can have that power, that uh, bias, but taking away the power means that even if they think that person should be stopped and frisked, they know that they legally cannot do that. So that's the difference between bias and power that can be changed in terms of policies. And not just policies on paper, the policies that are actually through actions so that I believe that medical and health providers and police departments all need to be assessed annually. Not by the government, because I don't trust the government, but by people who specialize in this work, who are across the nation, who can do audits. I think that police departments should be financially audited every year to see exactly mm -hmm. where our taxpayer money is going. And also to be audited in terms of policies, practices, brutality that's not being reported. Most of it's not reported to the news stations. And also police behaviors that are not reported in crime data. So when we use crime data, suicide data, it's based on law enforcement reports to the FBI and so forth. A lot of this stuff is falsely categorized as well. And it's going to keep being falsely categorized because literally nobody is controlling police. So that's why when people say America is becoming a police state or military state, that's how America was founded. That's how this land was stolen 529 years ago by white people and indigenous and black people and Japanese entrenchment camps. 
white people raping, murdering, stealing, medical racism, scientific racism, police controlling us, especially after Emancipation Proclamation. So this is not something that's brand new. Donald Trump did not bring light to this problem. Indigenous people and African Black people have brought light to this for centuries, and we've been punished for discussing something without permission from white people, including without permission from white liberals, white Democrats, Democrats and white anti-fascists and white progressives. Because white people as an aggregate, regardless of political party, think that nothing exists unless and until white people say so. And that's Mm -hmm. when we're supposed to speak up. So the same thing happens with police. White people after George Floyd, including white liberals, white Democrats were like, oh my goodness, I had no idea. Literally, we have photos, we have videos of police with canine units biting our people. Every Black person, including myself, has at least one family member who has been beaten unlawfully or even killed by police. Every single Black person in our family and sometimes immediate family. So Mm -hmm. when people act like 2016 taught them something new or the George Floyd protests taught them something new, Those are usually not Black people saying that. And if it is Black people, those are Black people who have spent their entire lives just forced into white spaces in which they were convinced that losing your peripheral vision now makes you real smart, right? Mm. And so I tell people they have to go beyond that. So I no longer train police departments because until police departments prove they're ready to do something more than just put my name on something as a Black woman criminologist, do more than brag about bias trainings, I'm no longer going to pretend that police should exist in that capacity. So I I know we hear this, this phrase all the time, this defund the police. Mm-hmm. And there are so many takes on what it means. And some people are like, super against it. Some people are super for it, but we don't know sort of what it means when people say defund the police. So can you give me your take on that phrase? Okay. Well, I'll give you the factual take. So for centuries, Black people have demanded that police be removed because we know the origins of police. It wasn't to create a safer space necessarily. It was more so to protect us, control us. Police were part of lynchings. Police were part of Ku Klux Klan before, during, and after Klan actually wore their costumes. And and so defund has always been a demand in some sense. So I'm someone who believes that 95% of funds should be removed from police departments and 95% of staff should be removed. And that 95% should be put back into schools, back into community, medical and health services, workforce development, job skills, and family services. These are the real services that actually reduce the tendency of violence, including violence towards oneself. Those are real preventive measures, okay? Instead, cities are intentionally designed in a classist, racist, ableist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic way so that you can find liquor stores everywhere, but you can it's difficult to find good medical and health services. You can find police, but oftentimes not when they're needed. Okay. So defund can mean literally re- removing the funds, 
mm-hmm. but it's being falsely exaggerated by some black people even to mean that just tomorrow the police are all gone. And when you present that falsehood, that allows police, which is 100% founded in white supremacy from the policies, procedures, actions, and everything, 100%, even when it's an all-Black police department at HBCU, it's still based in the white supremacist foundation. So when you go based on the falsehood that defunding police means tomorrow police are all gone, police are extremely in power because this is a police state and a military state, and police are very vindictive. So what they'll do to prove a point is they'll take longer on 911 calls or they'll show up, but they'll kind of take a step back. And we've actually had some news stories recently about that where the police have been like, well, this is what happened when you defund the police. Mm. So as black people in particular, we're expected to be boo-boo to fool and not know that that is intentionally to slap us in the face to prove a point. Like, where are people who come from thousands of years of knowledge and research, right? We know when someone's doing something to spite us and to prove a point. So when police do that is 100% abuse of power. It's just like if you were in the hospital and you were telling the medical and health professionals, the nurses, that you cannot mix these medications because you've actually researched it, Right. They oftentimes won't listen to you. They might try to skip that other medication under the others, thinking you're going to take the medications as a shot. That's what a lot of people do. They don't see what's in the cup. They just take it to the head, right? Mm -hmm. And then what if the medical doctor and nurse become vindictive? And they're like, oh, well, you think you know everything. We're going to let you take care of yourself for a few hours. And you have a negative response to something. And they're like, well, that's what happens when you challenge us. It's the exact same thing with police departments. And so defund does not mean that police go away tomorrow. It means that we work towards this change, this fiscal change. We work towards this change in terms of how cities are designed, how cities are planned. We work towards it so that the police officers who claim, and I say claim with quotation marks, that they became police to actually help people, that they learn that criminologists such as myself can show you how to get another job in which you're actually helping people because you're doing preventive measures. There's a reason why some cities are doing 911 calls that transfer people over to crisis lines instead of to the police department because police are not first responders. So I want people to understand that defund has been messed up in meaning because there's always extremism on both sides of every movement. There's some people in the defund movement who really believe that we can just take away police right now and all is good. Those tend not to be black people because black people understand Mm -hmm. centuries of the vindictiveness and the attacks of white people, okay? But for the people who are knowledgeable of what it means to change this police state, they know that defund is a process that takes time. First, you got to be honest about how much of the city funds and state funds are going into law enforcement agencies. That honesty is what's missing. No matter mm-hmm. who the politician is, every politician's going to make up some stuff. So I want people to understand that defund does not mean that tomorrow morning, if a crisis happens, there's going to be nobody there. They want Black folk to think that. And especially now with the white Trumpers 
threatening another insurrection and another civil war. Now they want black folk to be scared that if we don't have police, ain't nobody gonna stop them white people from lynching you. That's centuries of the same scare tactic to make black people compliant and complacent because we are desperate and we're made to think that who's gonna help you? We don't help you, right? It's a dose Mm -hmm. of that white savior syndrome. We can defund police in a way that is a procedure and a process that changes the funding, does assessments, does not pretend that police can really be retrained. But we can say maybe we can have some officers here to deal with some big emergencies that community work can't help. So that's my take on it. And I'm going to stop us right there. You can tune in next week to listen to part two of my interview with Dr. Kimia Nuru-Dennis. Thank you so much for listening. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for HUDSPOD. And you can support the show by going to buymeacoffee.com slash HUDSPOD. Remember, HUDSPOD is spelled H-U-D-S-P-O-D. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure you get the latest episodes. And if you don't mind, please leave me a five-star review. Stay safe, and I'll see you next week.